0: If you have a Bible with you, you can turn that to Philippians 2, verses 12 through 18. This is found on page 981 on your pew Bibles, or if you want to just pull up on your phone, there are a bunch of people that work in the clouds that will drop that in if you just type in Philippians 2, verses 12 through 18. So pull that up, and if you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to take that paperback one, or I guess it's hardback, that one in in the seat back in front of you as a gift from us. So let's hear the word of the Lord. among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that on the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Thanks, Taylor. Here. <laughs> All right, well, good morning to each of you. Again, my name is Bill Gorman. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are so glad that you've joined us this week. And especially if you are a guest with us, this is your first time being at Christ Community, we just hope that you feel uh, the warmth and the love of Jesus in this place. And if you have been back uh, now for the first time in a long time being here to you, we're so glad that you're with us. In the midst of this. So, um, before we look at this passage together in more depth, the one that Taylor just read for us, I'd love to pause and pray and just acknowledge that we are in the presence of the one who inspired these words and ask for the Spirit's help to understand, apply them now. So, Father in heaven, we thank you that you have spoken in times past to the prophets, that you've spoken to the apostles, and that now you have spoken through your son Jesus. And we pray that you would help us by the power of the Holy Spirit to hear afresh the words that he inspired these human authors to write. Thank you for preserving them for us. And would they transform and change us now as we encounter Jesus through them. Amen. Well, I am not a big social media person. I I just, I don't, it's not been something I've, I've dug into a lot. I probably check Facebook, Instagram a couple times a month just to kind of see what's going on out there. But there are every once in a while where a certain social media hashtag I think is just brilliant. And one of these, a friend shared this with me recently, is the hashtag explain a film badly. Has anyone seen these uh, things out there? The idea is that you give kind of a Twitter-length summary of a film, so really short, that just has some true facts about the film, but totally misses the main point of the story. So here are a few of them. So Star Wars. This is explain a film badly. Uh, talking Frog convinces son to kill his dad. That's the, uh, the, the, the plot there. Or, or what about Captain America? So explain a film badly. Guy on drugs wins the war by throwing a frisbee. Um, here's Lord of the Rings. This is the uh, Lord of the Rings one that old man uh, Convinces child to go into a volcano. It's Lord of the Rings. Frozen, right? It's everyone's favorite Frozen Disney movie. Uh, It says this After the death of her parents, young socialite causes millions in property damage. Uh, I think this actually might be my favorite Uh, Harry Potter. Uh, Boy spends seven years being third wheel. And this one also is pretty good, Hunger Games as well, that older sister ruins younger sister's chance of appearing on television. So each one of those explain a film badly references true parts of those stories. But they kind of completely miss the point of what those films are about and certainly don't tell the story in all of its fullness. And it got me thinking, what would be hashtag explain the Bible badly? What if you tried to do a two or three sentence, you know, word summary of the Bible that would miss it? And I think there are a lot of those out there actually of, of kind of partial truth or half truth about what the Bible story is really about, both inside the church and outside the church. And this is one, I'm going to put one up for us that doesn't miss it quite as badly as the ones we just looked at, but does not tell the whole story of the Bible from beginning to end and capture the richness of that. And that is this, I think this is often how we tell the story, that God died to save you from sin and take you to heaven. Now that is a true statement, and it is is a beautiful, powerful, life-giving reality that is spoken to in the Scriptures. But it is not the whole story, and it misses so much. In the passage that we're going to look at this morning, Paul is going to show us that while this statement is true, and if you take that statement away from Christianity, you have something that is not Christianity, it is absolutely vital, but it is so much smaller than the whole story of the Scriptures, that we were made for something more than just mere rescue from something, but we're also saved for something, for this new life with Jesus. We're saved for so much more. Sort of summarizing the Bible with that statement alone is like saying that marriage is only the wedding day right? the wedding is vital. You, you can't have a marriage without a wedding, this moment of committing vows to one another and, and having this celebration, this party. But after that, there's a whole life to be lived together. Marriage is so much more than just the wedding day, and the story of the Bible and our life with God is so much more than simply God died to save us from our sins so we could go to heaven one day. What Paul is going to show us in this passage is that God rescues us to remake us, that God rescues us to remake us. And yes, it is absolutely true that we have followed our first parents, Adam and Eve in the garden, into sin and rebellion and death and just Judgment has come as a result of that, and we desperately need Jesus to die on the cross to forgive us and to be raised again to new life. That's a huge part that's missing from that statement. God has been raised again to new life so that we can have new life in him. All of that is true. But again, we weren't just saved from something. We aren't just saved from judgment. Though that is true, beautifully, powerfully, necessarily true, but we are also saved for something, for this new life. We were rescued to be remade. And so this morning, as we look at this passage, which I think has often been confusing for many of us, because there's this almost seemingly contradictory idea at the heart of it that we want to try to get to, that God rescues us, he has saved us, but then we, Paul says we should work out that salvation with fear and trembling. How does our effort and salvation, how do those fit together? What is Paul talking about in this text? And what we're going to see as we walk through it together is that this path of Christian transformation, it begins in love. It's paved with obedience and influence. And then it finally, it leads to great joy. So it starts in love And we're going to see how it flows into obedience and influence and ends in joy, in great joy. So first, we have to see that it's rooted in love. It is rooted in love. And a lot of focus, and we're going to spend an outsized portion of this message on this first point of these two verses, 12 and 13, because there's just so much there to unpack. And then our last two points will be a bit shorter but as you look at verses 12 and 13, it's easy to move on to this work out your salvation piece, and how does that fit, and skip over that very first word that Paul writes in this, this uh, section, or not quite the first word, but that first phrase, I should say. And look at it again. Don't miss it, because this language of being beloved, or some translations bring it across dear friends, is so key to all this. Verse 12, therefore, my beloved— As you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What we see here is that Christian life and transformation, it's rooted in this status of being the Beloved specifically being a part of a community of love that's what paul's saying he he loves this church he calls them his dear friends his beloved but more broadly than that right this beloved nature is not just another community of humans that loves us but the very god who created us calls us beloved we are loved deeply and profoundly by him And what Paul knows here and follows the grain, the pattern of the universe in this, he also knows what every good parent knows, that if you're going to have effective correction, you have to connect first. That lasting change in the life of a child comes only when you connect with them in relationship before you do the work of correction. And again, this is woven into the fabric of the universe because when Adam and Eve, when they fall into sin and death and rebel against God and turn their backs on him, God does not come in the first place with a pronouncement of judgment. He comes looking for them. He goes to look for them and he asks the question, where are you? The God of the universe is looking for you. He's seeking connection. He's asking the question, where are you? He comes to you in the posture of love. John chapter three, verse 16, the one of the most famous verses in all the Bible, for God so loved the world. Book of Romans says it's the kindness of God that leads us to change, to repentance. This idea of there's this connection, this seeking out of relationship that then leads to transformation. We are not just rescued from, but we're rescued into relationship. It's not just about getting out of hell, though that is important, very important, but it's, it's, that's in some ways is the, the lesser thing. It's about getting into this new life with God, this new relationship with Him, which is why salvation and effort are not at odds why Paul can say a statement, work out your salvation, because it, it, you enter into this relationship and the, the, the beauty of this grace that flows actually empowers our effort to be able to enter into this kind of new life together. But again, so often we end up treating sort of salvation like this transaction. That's just this kind of we make a decision, it gets written down on a piece of paper, and then we kind of go about our lives as though everything else is the same. It's almost like getting married in order to, to stay in country, right? It's kind of like a green card marriage. Like imagine you're in another country and and you're going to be deported, but someone agrees, well, I'll I'll marry you on paper so that now you're a a legal resident, but we're going to then just go about the rest of our lives together. Actually, if you know, uh, maybe you don't know this part of C.S. Lewis's story, but C.S. Lewis actually did this Uh, for uh, a woman named Joy Davidman. She was an American woman. She had come to England. Their whole story is is long and and complicated, but essentially she was facing the reality of having to return to the United States to face an alcoholic, abusive husband, and Lewis agrees to marry her on paper, legally, so that she can stay in the UK. And it's not until much later in their story that they actually fall in love, and then they have a, a marriage by... An Anglican pastor and they start to actually live together as husband and wife. But initially it was just a legal marriage that Lewis wanted to protect Joy and allow her to stay in the country but there was no sort of true marriage there. Green card kind of marriage is not real marriage and a green card salvation is not real salvation. We're saved into a relationship with someone. We're, we're rescued out of judgment, yes, and that is a glorious thing, but not just to then go and live the rest of our lives as we were living before, but to enter into an entire new relational world with the very one who created you and the community of the church that he's brought you into. What's so key is to recognize that earning is not opposed or rather, probably the best way to say this, is, is, is that earning is opposed to grace, but effort is not opposed to grace. In fact, grace actually empowers us in this new relationship to actually do the work of obedience, of following Jesus, of being changed and transformed. But I think sometimes we look at obedience as the set of rules that does sort of earn us favor. And that couldn't be further from the truth. I think uh, New Testament scholar Lynn Kohick is so helpful here. Um, She's uh, at at Denver Seminary. She writes a brilliant commentary on Philippians. And she talks about the dynamic that Paul is pointing here has nothing to do with earning a relationship, but rather in deepening in relationship. This is what she writes. This is so helpful. She says, obedience is not a list to accomplish, but a relationship to deepen. Obedience is not a list to accomplish, but a relationship to deepen. That's absolutely what Paul is getting at here. This is not about earning merit or earning salvation or being good enough. We, are, we cannot be, we will never be good enough in our own to ever merit the favor of God. He, we are the beloved even before While we were sinners, Christ died for us. We were beloved before we could ever have any kind of sense of of earning or being good enough. So then obedience is not about earning, but about deepening in a relationship, growing together in this. New Testament scholar John Barclay is so helpful here as well in the terms of how do we receive a free gift, but also that that free gift Elicits a response from us. Here's what he writes. I think this is so helpful. This is so important. He says this Across Paul's letters, grace is defined consistently as an incongruous gift. It is freely given in the sense that it is given without prior conditions and without regard to worth or capacity. But that does not mean that it comes with no expectations of return, no hope for a response, no strings attached. A gift may be free in one sense, given irrespective of worth or desert, but not in another with no expectation of response. The gift of grace is given to us purely because we are loved. But when we receive that gift, it empowers a response of love back to the one who has given it. A life of relationship and joy, not of a continued doing our own thing and walking in our own path. But then Paul also says something that's really interesting there in verse, the end of verse 12. He uses this language with fear and trembling. And I pondered over that phrase a little bit this week because maybe if you've been reading your Bible for a while and you hear this language of of salvation with fear and trembling, you, you might think, well, isn't, and Bill, you've just made the point. Isn't this about being rooted in the status of the beloved? And I, I, there's a verse out there I know that like, says, isn't perfect love cast out fear? Maybe I read that in 1 John somewhere and you're thinking, Bill, how does fear and trembling work with the status of being rescued and saved by grace and being beloved? Where does fear come into this? How does that fit into this picture? Well, I think what is so key is to understand what comes next in verse 13. Because He says, with fear and trembling, for he gives the kind of the ground of this, this fear and trembling. It is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The fear and trembling is really this picture of stunning awe at the reality of verse 13, that we should stand and tremble in awe in verse 13, that it is God who is working in you, in all of us, that the God who created the universe with a word, who spoke the stars into existence, who created all of the sea creatures and all of the planets and all of the galaxies. His power and presence is in you right now. It's in us as the body of Christ right now. That is incredible power. As I was thinking about this, so this isn't a fear of like, I'm, God is going to judge me if I don't get this right. That's, that's not that you are, Paul says, is our salvation, our rescue, that your status as the beloved is secure. This is not a fear of judgment, but a standing in awe at the incredible power. I think of the people who had the, the privilege of being at one of the, the Apollo launches and that incredible Saturn V rocket taking off from that launch pad in Florida. I think there was Like this trembling awe at seeing that sight. I mean, I watch those sights just on recordings and there's this the most powerful machine ever built taking off. There's not a a fear that this thing's gonna blow up and and kill me. People were far enough away from that, right? But an awe and trembling at the power of this thing. In fact, that's that's a drop in bucket compared to the power of the creator of the universe that is at work in you in us. So we, we stand in trembling awe because that power is, is in us. Working, renewing, remaking us <clears throat> after the image of Jesus. It's an incredible thing. And it's part of the reason that we gather together regularly as a body of Christ because we go throughout our day, and I'm the same way, we go through our day-to-day lives in that sense of this kind of Saturn V kind of power of Jesus in us by the Holy Spirit, starts to fade. I just don't think about it a whole lot. And we come together to, to sing songs to remind us of the bigness and the beauty and the power of God and grace. And we come and we remind one another of the good news of the gospel. We reanimate our imaginations around what is really true. It's why we gather to do that so that when we scatter Because we're gathered here as the church, but we also are the church scattered across the city, but we gather, remind ourselves, encourage one another in this truth. But this is still, there's mystery here, right? That Paul says we are saved and we are loved and, and this is grace and it's all about God giving what we could never do on our own, but then he calls us to work out. So what, how do those things fit together in this mystery? And part of this is there are mysteries at the center of the Christian faith that are, we are meant to stand in awe of and not be able to fully dissect and understand, and that's okay. But one of the people who has helped me most in sort of bringing these ideas of our working out of our salvation with the kind of profound idea of salvation by grace alone is Rankin Wilburn and his wonderful book, Union with Christ, The Way to inno- enjoy, to Know and Enjoy God. It's a wonderful book, and it covers a lot of different facets of the Christian life, but he gives this one illustration, this metaphor that I think is so helpful, and he says, in our Christian lives, as we grow in a relationship, we grow in this union of Christ by faith, that it is not, he uses the metaphor of sailing, and, he, and sailing is so key. He says, we're not motorboats, where we have all of the power in of ourselves, right? A motorboat, it has the, this engine that's there, and it moves under its own power, and it's all self-contained. That's not how the Christian life works. We have to have a power that is outside of ourselves to do this. But he says, neither are we in just a raft floating, totally passive, with no sort of role to play or active possibility to play. He says, no, our life with God and union with Christ is like sailing. Now, if you have ever been on a sailboat, I mean, we can all imagine, right, sailing. If there's no motor on that boat, a lot of sailboats do have some motors, but if you imagine a boat, a sailing ship that has no motor, the only way that boat is going to move is if there is wind, right? It, it's, its power source is completely external to itself. It can bring nothing to the table in terms of moving itself forward. It's completely and utterly dependent on the wind. That is true of us on the grace and the power and the Spirit of God has to come outside. And if we're going to move anywhere in the transformation of the Christian life, but what Wilburn parts out is that we can learn to sail better, right? You can, the wind can push a sailboat, even if it doesn't have the sails up, but we can learn to hoist the sails. We can learn how to, how to tune those sails into the wind. You can learn to tack back and forth so that you're actually working with the wind instead of going against it and drifting off course, that there is this life, of relationship, almost a dance that is learned, and you get better at it over time. And here's the thing with sailing, if you, the harder you work at it, the more enjoyable and actually freeing it becomes. I think it's such a great metaphor. We don't supply the power. We can't do this on our own, but we can learn to sail better. And the idea of raising the sail or of learning, those are the spiritual disciplines of of reading the scriptures, gathering with community, uh, prayer, service, all of those things as we practice those spiritual disciplines. Disciplines, those spiritual habits, whatever language you want to put around them, we're actually learning to sail our lives not against the wind, but into the wind and the power of God training together with Jesus. And the inevitable consequence of that is that our obedience then, it, it makes us more influential. And this is our next point that we want to see as we learn to sail with Jesus, as we train with him, we begin to actually have an influence on the world around us. Being, obedience re, being obedient remakes our influence. And again, that last point was the longest one, and there, we have two more here that are going to be much shorter, but no less important. Because we were created in love, we were being remade in love, we experience obedience, and that obedience leads to influence. And here's one of the biggest things that is missing in that short description, that kind of explained the story short that we looked at earlier, is that it says nothing about what we were originally made for. Friends, we were created in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 to be the image of God and to make something of the world with him, to be in relationship with him, but to, to cultivate and keep the garden, to do this work with him. And we are being remade in the image of Christ, the the new Adam, the new and better Adam. Not to just sit on a harp or cloud and play a harp someday, but to actually rejoin what we were always made for, to build these communities of life and flourishing, both now in this present creation and in the new creation one day. We are redeemed for that purpose and that joy. It's what we are called to be, remade in the image of Jesus, to a life of influence. Now listen to what Paul writes here in verse 14 on through sixteen. He says this do all things without grumbling or disputing, that ye may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you and this is key language here, you shine as lights in the world. Holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ. I may be poor, or, so holding fast to the day of Christ, I may be poured out, pr- sorry, I might be proud that I did not run in labor in vain. And, and Paul's point here is kind of stunning. When you think about it? Because again, some of these verses get so familiar, we just kind of read on. But you imagine all that Paul, and this is even last week, bringing in all that Paul has been talking about in this letter so far, starting at the beginning of chapter two, all this call to unity based on who Jesus is as the exalted son of God who humbled himself and took on the form of a servant and emptied himself and, and all of this beauty of that and then was exalted to the highest place that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And then he goes on to say, and there's this power working in you and fear and trembling and all of this. And Paul's first application point after all of that is do all things without grumbling and disputing. I kind of remember thinking, wait, wait, is that is that is that it? That's the big takeaway after all of this that he's building up to is just do all things without grumbling and complaining. Isn't that that's what like dads say to their kids on vacation in the backseat of the car? You know, stop complaining, stop grumbling. We're, we're gonna get there soon. Is this really what we've been building up to in the letter? Do all things without grumbling and disputing? I was like, why did Paul, why is that his application here? And the more I thought about, though, I think it makes a lot of sense. In the broader context, especially, that we looked at last week of Paul calling for, for unity. But he points out in this that actually our unity and our love is a sign to the world that the gospel is active in our community. So a community that's grumbling and complaining doesn't do this. And I think that grumbling and complaining is a sign of two things in a community. This could be in a family, in a church, in a company, an organization. But glum, grumbling and complaining are a sign of, of two things. It's a sign, one, that there's, there's too, much too small of a vision of who God is, a small faith. And it's also a sign that there's a lot of division Grumbling and complaining are a sign of a small faith and large division. Because if you have a lot of grumbling and complaining taking place in a church family, in your office, in your, it's, it's a sign that the, 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 there is a, a lack of a bigness of a vision of who we are as an organization or of who God is as the creator of the that Our view of God is too small. Because when we really begin to see who he is and what he's done, and our imagination is captured by that, it's hard to complain about the small things because we're just in awe of who he is and what he's doing and what's been done on our behalf. So grumbling and complaining is usually a sign that our vision, our view, our faith in God is too small. And it's also a sign that there is a lot of division in that place. And Paul says that's a problem because our goal, our vocation, is to shine as lights in the world. I thought a lot about the the picture of a lighthouse this week. And you can imagine a a lighthouse that's out on this kind of rocky point on the coast, and it's, it's there shining brightly to prevent people from shipwrecking their lives on these buried rocks that they don't even know. But here's what grumbling and complaining is like to that lighthouse. Because if, if you have a lighthouse, there's a work of a lighthouse keeper, right? And one of the biggest jobs of that lighthouse keeper is to make sure that the glass, the lens, the windows of that lighthouse is, are crystal clear so that the light can shine. And grumbling and complaining are just like a film and a filth and a dirt all over that glass, that lens of the light. And it keeps it from shining brightly. If we as a church family are grumbling and complaining, people are not going to see. They're not going to see the light shining that clearly. It's like that film, that yuck, mud on the headlights. Maybe they'll get some sense of it. It's not that Jesus isn't any more glorious, but the lens through which he is shining is dirty with grumbling and complaining. This is what Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount, being salt and light that people are attracted to, drawn to. Madeline Langle I think she puts this so well, she writes this. She says, we draw people to Christ not by loudly discrediting what they believe or by telling them how wrong they are and how right we are, but by showing them a light that is so lovely that they want with all their hearts to know the source of it. And friends, when we are mired in grumbling and complaining, no one is looking at that and saying, I want to know the source of that. But when there is unity, when there is self-sacrificial love, when there is encouragement and kind words, even in the midst of hardship and trial and suffering, then our light becomes so lovely that people say, I want to know the source. Because it leads to joy, which is our final point here. Because being obedient and influential remakes joy. Even in suffering and hardship, and this is where Paul ends in verses 17 uh, and, and beyond here. He says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. And there's so much in that phrase, those metaphors of offering sacrifice, we don't have time to unpack right now. But the point is, even in the midst of suffering, Paul is saying, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Again, joy is this inherently relational idea. He's rejoicing with you all. And then verse 18, Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Again, he wants to rejoice with them. He wants them to rejoice with him. This mutuality of joy, of someone being glad to be with you, is the result of a life that Paul describes here. A life that is powered by the Spirit that leads to transformation, that brings to the fullness of the joy that we're not just rescued from something, as beautiful and incredible as that is, but that we're also rescued into something, that we're being remade. Joy is the result. And when that kind of joy happens, man, our neighborhoods, our cities, our world, they become brighter, more lovely, more beautiful places. And this congregation, I'm just so proud of each and every one of you because this community is doing that. The the Christ community, because of your presence, not just here gathered on Sunday morning, to be clear, but in your workplaces, in your homes, and in our city is more a beautiful place. Whether it's King Elementary School, just across town here, where teachers and students are being cared for and loved by this community, or whether it's our relationship with churches across the world in Kenya where there's a mutual exchange of joy and encouragement and resources. That this church family is making King Elementary, is making Kenya more beautiful, more lovely. That there are kids in the center school district, that there are employees of Cerner here, that those, I was, I said in the first service, I was like, at the Cerner as a company is more beautiful. Those offices, and I was like, really, I don't know if Cerner's back in their offices yet, but those Zoom calls that all you Cerner employees are on are more beautiful, are more lovely because of the light of Christ that is shining through you when you work without grumbling and complaining, when you show self-sacrificial love to people who, who no one else cares for or who are difficult to get along with, it's a beautiful thing that happens. We were rescued in order to be remade. Your stories bear that out. And I love watching the Spirit's work in this congregation, remaking us together and each of us individually after the image of Jesus. And this morning, I would encourage you, maybe you're listening to this message and thinking, I, I actually don't know if, I don't even understand all these words you're using, but I don't know, Bill, I don't know if I've been united to Christ by faith. I don't, I don't know if I have that external power that you're talking about. And I'd invite you today to do that. In just a moment, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pray for us and I just invite you to pray these words. I'll say them twice, but if, you, if you're here and you're like, I, I don't think I've ever done this. I wanna encourage you to pray these words or maybe you think I've done this in the past at some point, but I have, this, this reality doesn't describe my relationship and I wanna enter into this more fully. You can just pray along with me as I do that. Let's do that now. So Pray along this with this prayer. Jesus, would you rescue me? Jesus, would you remake me? I trust you. Say that again. Jesus, would you remake me? Would you rescue me? I trust in you. Amen. Father, I pray for each and every one of us here. Whether we just in this moment are first coming to this place of saying, I trust you. I need you to rescue me. I need you to remake my life. Or oh, we have journeyed with you for many, many years, have enjoyed sailing with you. Would you help us to find a deep and renewed joy, an obedience that deepens our relationship with you? We pray this in Jesus' name, by the power of the Holy Spirit that makes any of this possible by grace. Amen.